Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. 187 career wins, and he was the number one pitcher on the 1927 Murderer's Row version of the New York Yankees. But most of his career was played in St. Louis for the Browns, and despite being called one of the game's best, so few can tell you anything about him, and even fewer have ever heard of him. Next, on Sports Forgotten Heroes, the story of one of baseball's forgotten stars, Urban Shocker. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shape the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello once again and welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. Today, the forgotten story of one of baseball's earliest pitching stars, a man who so few have heard of, a guy who won 187 games, a guy who pitched during the same era as Grover Cleveland Alexander, Burley Grimes, Dazzy Vance, Wade Hoyt, and Sam Jones, a guy who was called the best by so many of his contemporaries and whom Babe Ruth called the best, Urban Shocker. Shocker pitched in the majors from 1916 until he passed in 1928. He came up with the New York Yankees, was traded to the St. Louis Browns, and then was traded back to the Yankees. He was the one player whom the Yankees and Hall of Fame manager Miller Huggins admitted they had made a mistake in trading away. Shocker was a loud and boisterous pitcher, never took a backseat to anyone. He had a huge presence about himself and always spoke his mind, at least when he was mowing down the opposition while playing for the Browns. But when he was traded back to the Yankees, something happened. With a roster featuring Babe Ruth, Shocker faded into the background and just went about his business. But was it only because he joined a team featuring the Babe? Or was there something more to it? And how is it possible that a pitcher with so much talent, a pitcher who mowed down the Yankees with regularity before rejoining them, a pitcher who won 187 games could be such an unknown? Joining me in just a moment is author Steve Steinberg. He has written several books on baseball stars of the 1920s, including Urban Shocker, Silent Hero of Baseball's Golden Age. Steve first heard about Urban in a most unusual way and decided he needed to know more, and his book on Shocker is terrific. Now, before we get into today's edition of Sports Forgotten Heroes and the story of Urban Shocker, I'd like to tell you that today's podcast is sponsored by Audible. With Audible, you get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com backslash sportsfh. 
Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Audible is a great way to show your support for Sports Forgotten Heroes and a terrific way to listen to your favorite books, especially when you're on the run. Give it a try free at www.audibletrial.com backslash sportsfh. I also invite you to visit the Sports Forgotten Heroes Patreon page at patreon.com backslash sportsfh. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com backslash sportsfh. New content is posted there every day. Quizzes, this day in sports history, more information about our guests and the heroes we discuss, and it's also a great way to show your support for Sports Forgotten Heroes. Again, that's patreon.com backslash sportsfh. Follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Twitter at sportsfheroes. Look for our page on Facebook or visit Sports Forgotten Heroes on the web at sportsfh.com. So, Urban Shocker first pitched for the New York Yankees from 1916 through the 1918 season, and then he was traded to the Browns for Eddie Plank and Del Pratt. Plank was at the end of his career, and Pratt enjoyed a few good years with New York. The Browns, incidentally, first played in 1902 and stayed in St. Louis through the 1953 season before moving and becoming the Baltimore Orioles. Shocker played with St. Louis through the 1924 season before being traded back to the Yankees for a host of players, including Bullet Joe Bush. Back with the Yankees, Shocker joined a team that was on the precipice of becoming one of the greatest teams ever. But it was to be short-lived, and joining me now is Steve Steinberg, author of Urban Shocker, Silent Hero of Baseball's Golden Age. Steve, thanks for being here, and welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. Thank you. Glad to be with you. Hey, let me ask you this. Let's start here. When did you first learn of Urban Shocker, and why did you decide to write a book about him? Well, I first discovered him uh, pretty much by accident when my son in 1998-99, who was 10 or 11 years old, I used to go or I used to go with him to card shows and card shops. And I noticed uh, a baseball card. It turned out it was from a series of black and white uh, cards and it said Urban Shocker on the front. And uh, I I, I thought that that just referred to some incident, like maybe a shooting in a ballpark. (laughs) an urban shocker. And, uh, when I flipped to the back of the, uh, uh, card, you know, I was the one who was shocked that this guy was, you know, I never had even heard of him and he went 18 and six on the 27 Yankees right. and was dead, uh, before the 28th season ended. So that's when I, uh, really got hooked on him and shockers really the one that drew me into the whole, uh, you know, world of baseball writing. And, uh, you know, I, I did, uh, co-authored a couple books and, and authored a third one before Shocker, uh, and I finally got around to him. It was time, uh, almost 20 years later, to get his story told. What was it that intrigued you the most about him? As you were doing all the research, what intrigued you the most about Urban Shocker? Well, I think there's a couple of things. I think, first of all, is that he was as good as he was when he was dying, And he uh, obviously was losing his physical skill and he made some amazing transitions. But the other thing that was sort of fascinating was the fact that he's considered a rather unknown and quiet and reserved guy. 
And yet early in his career, I don't think, maybe with the exception of Babe Ruth, there was anybody more colorful and volatile in the game. Uh, and, and, and just looking at the change that he underwent in terms of his personality is, is pretty fascinating. Sure. You know, the name of this podcast is Sports Forgotten Heroes. And what I try to do is remind people of the game's past heroes who might not be top of mind. Why should baseball fans, even sports fans in general, know about Urban? And why do you think he's forgotten? Well, you know, the way I look at it, it's not like a fallen star. If we're, I, I sort of uh, compare the analogy to outer space, and there's a lot of stars out there, and sometimes the new ones and the brighter ones just uh, outshine the others. It's not that they're not there. We just don't see them. In some ways, I'm bringing back a story of somebody that most people never heard of, and yet the irony is a lot of 10-year-old kids in the 1920s Maybe they wouldn't have known as much about his personality as I got my around my hands, but you know he he, he might have been a household name then. But there's we can only retain in our memory so much, and things just uh, get uh, crowded uh, out of the way. There, the star is still up there. We just don't we just don't see it quite as brightly. His career was, I think, really interesting, and he had one unique feature that helped him along the way. A crooked finger. Tell us about the mishap that caused this to happen, and then tell us how it actually helped him as a pitcher. Well, he was actually a catcher, and I never actually nailed down uh, the actual game where the injury happened. You know, when you go back in the early careers of ball players, you know, there's there's minimal coverage, and certainly in the low minors, or it might have even happened when he was playing sandlot ball, semi-pro ball. But he had a broken finger and it wasn't set correctly. And it's sort of like when Mordecai Three Finger Brown hmm. lost uh, one finger and part of another one in a uh, farming accident in a, th a thresher uh, of wheat, I think it was. It enabled him uh, to do certain things with the ball. But Shocker just got uh, a little hook, a crook. And the way the ball came off of it, uh, his it just made a devastating slow ball. And even though he was a spitball pitcher, a lot of uh, his strength was on uh, on the slow ball, uh, you know, the change of pace, they called it then. I guess we call it a change up now, but it uh, it was a remarkable, uh, remarkable pitch the way he was able to just release it. Yeah, you refer to the slow ball quite often in your book. Tell us about that pitch and just what kind of pitcher Urban was overall. Well, unfortunately, we don't have any video. There may be a few seconds here or there, perhaps in the 26 World Series uh, before Game 2. And, uh, you know, he, he relied on uh, his fastball quite a bit more in early career. He led the American League in strikeouts in 1922, although he only had, I say only, only had 149. I mean, really, uh, you know, Dazzy Vance in the National League and Rube Waddell a decade earlier, they put up big numbers. But uh, usually around 150 strikeouts was close to the league lead, mm -hmm. and you can just follow his statistics. So he had the occasional uh, um, spitball, the curveball, and I think he, he ended up using the slow ball more and more. We have a pretty, I have a pretty vivid description from uh, a former teammate of his, Roger Peckinpah, who described 
Shocker's slow ball, and I think uh, perhaps with a grain of salt, really exaggerating it. Uh, but at the end of his career, you know, his physical skills were, uh, you know, he was just losing his strength sure. uh, with his uh, with his illness that uh, he probably knew about for the last three years of his career. The slow ball itself, would you consider that like today's changeup? Was there a maybe an an arch in it? Like I, re- I remember the old Yankee pitcher, I think his name was Dave LaRoche, and he used to throw the lob. Is is it more like a, a lob ball or was it more like a a changeup that we're used to seeing today? Well, you know, it's funny. From the Peckabah quote, it sounded like it was a, an extreme lob ball, like the Ephus pitch. Right. Uh, you know, uh, but I think it was more like a changeup, but it just had a terrific break to it. And uh, it just uh, it seemed like a spitball. And I think he could uh, change direction uh, on it also. But, you know, he faked the spitter every uh, or quite often. I don't know if every time he went to glove to mouth, he was one of the 17 pitchers that were allowed to continue to use the spitter even after it was banned in spring of 1920. Right. It was during his career that baseball was outlawing such pitches as the spitball and right like you and, just and, said and, he, he, you know. it was it was grandfathered in that that nobody knew could throw it but if you were already throwing it you were allowed to keep throwing it is that correct yeah and the one thing that most people don't realize this is very interesting is that when they banned the spitter in the spring of 1920 they actually banned it for everybody, but they gave those 17 pitchers who were registered, you know, in the major league office one year to, you know, sort of, so to speak, give them a year to transition. And what happened during the 1920 season, these pitchers, um, it's a very interesting sidebar, but they really did a pretty intense lobbying effort and ultimately persuaded enough of the owners in part saying, you know, why should you lose, you know, this is an asset a valuable asset uh, if an owner has a spitball pitcher to ban him is just like sacrificing part of the value of their club. And then in the 1920 World Series, one of the dominant spitball pitchers, Stan Kovaleski, was the hero for Cleveland. He won three games. The star pitcher for the uh, Dodgers, the losing team in the series, was Burley Grimes, the spitball pitcher. And uh, Baseball uh, at then basically let them grandfathered in when originally it was just a one-year window. Hmm. And Gaylord Perry wasn't a part of that. <laughs> well, I don't know. Was he pitching in the 1920s? I, he might have been. <laughs> Anything's possible. <Woo. laughs> yeah. Hey, um, he Urban received a lot of praise over the course of his career. The Babe said he was perhaps the best pitcher he faced. Ed Walsh said he was a great pitcher. John McGraw called him the smartest pitcher in the American League. Damon Runyon poured praise on him. So many poured praise on him. What was it about his game that elicited such praise? Well, he was a very flamboyant guy, which is paradoxical because when he joined the Yankees, and we can talk about that, he he had a very fundamental change in his personality. Right. And he was able he was able to back it up. He had a temper. He was arrogant. And uh, and he and the babe had some pretty great battles and neither one of them came out clearly ahead. But uh, and Shocker himself said, I love to pitch to someone like Babe Ruth. It's, you know, why do uh, 
riders of, of rodeo broncos like to get on those wild bulls. You know, it's the thrill of, you know, trying to tame the best. Sure. And uh, he, he, he delivered and he, he basically was able to do what he said he was going to do quite often. He was also a workhorse with the amount of games he pitched, the amount of innings he pitched. And yep. one of the little known things is that he won more games than anybody in the major leagues between 20 and 24. And actually between in those four or five, five years, he actually missed an average, at least between 20 and 23 of one full month of season. Wow. Now you begin to wonder what would happen. He was suspended a couple times. He had some issues. He had some injuries and he still put up those numbers. He probably in 22 where he pitched almost 350 innings and missed a month. He probably would have set the modern day record, which I think Ed Walsh said for the number of innings pitched, he would have been over 400 easily. My gosh, today's pitchers, heck, last year, the Houston Astros didn't even have anybody pitch on their team that would qualify for the ERA title. And that means they didn't have anybody pitch on their team that threw 162 innings and Urban threw almost 350. That's that's crazy to think about. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's a little bit different. And then back in the, his era, there were not really, you know, specialty relief pitchers were just coming about. But usually in the end of the dead ball era, that's through 1919 in the 1920s, uh, the if uh, a game was blowing up and a team wanted to win it, they would take their star pitcher if he wasn't pitching that day. And he would be the one who would get the save. Uh, they didn't have the statistic then. They've gone back retroactively and. And these star pitchers that were starters, basically, uh, they were not specialists. The other guys that didn't start a lot of games had sat on the bench. And, of course, there weren't 12 or 13 pitchers on a roster. The other guys were there if the game was, you know, 12 to 2 in favor Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. against your team. They came in and ate up the innings. Where did Urban get his love for the game? How did, how was he introduced to baseball? Tell me about his uh, uh, young days uh, up through the minors right before yeah, the Yankees he started, found him. Uh, he, you know, he, he started fairly late in life and, uh, you know, came up to the majors. There was always a lot of mystery about his age, but there was a lot of mystery about the ages of a lot of players. The old joke being that every year as they got older, they got younger a couple of years because <laughs> – you know, it wasn't easy to check and go online and see how old he really was. But he grew up in the Midwest. He was born in Cleveland and he um, he uh, grew up. He also spent time in his formative years in Detroit, where one of his older sisters lived. And it's hard to describe the the Sandlot Ball semi-pro uh, scene in the Midwest, especially uh, in in towns like Chicago, Cleveland, and Detroit, I mean, there were literally, if you go back to the microfilm of the newspapers uh, of, of that era, where there would be pages of, of the results, let's say, on a Sunday or a Monday after a Saturday or a Sunday game, and they didn't have the the strength of the, you know, the Catholic Church back east where Sunday games were banned, and there were literally hundreds and hundreds of games going on. And uh, there, there's a picture you can find on the Internet. Um, I think it's called Brookside Field. Uh, it starts with Brook, where there were 100,000 people at a semi-pro uh, 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 baseball game wow. championship in the, in the teens. It was just enormous. And you have to realize, you know, football was really not around. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, mm-hmm. and people, you know, the, 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 it was a college game. 
And, you know, you see headlines in the Monday paper about Sunday's game. The headline would be Brown beats Cornell three to nothing. And that was a high scoring football game. And, and, you know, basketball, there was a little bit in soccer. I mean, horse racing was a thing, but it didn't capture the youth of America. Boxing was a big deal. Uh, but again, it was, you know, sporadic. And again, wasn't really, uh, uh, mm-hmm. you know, caught the fancy of the baseball, baseball owned, you know, really owned uh, the sports pages. And the 1920s were the time that, uh, that really celebrity, uh, you know, sports figures started to rise and, and Ruth's timing was, uh, was, uh, perfect. Sure. So, so urban came up with the Yankees, but didn't stick. He was traded to the St. Louis Browns. Why? Right. Well, Miller Huggins, who was the, is now in the hall of fames was a, uh, uh, a, a young ball player and, um, he, uh, as a young ball player, he was a good second baseman for the Cardinals and the Reds. He took over as manager of the Cardinals and then moved to the Yankees in early uh, after the 1917 season and would go on to great success as a Yankee manager. But he was told that Shocker was a troublemaker. He never revealed who told him that. It probably was one of the coaches. Hmm. And Shocker, you know, there's a lot of players out there in different sports that maybe are on the edge, whether it's uh, alcohol or drugs or whatever, and some of them just fall over and others um, manage to, uh, you know, to control it and uh, stay on top of their game. And Shocker in the 1917 season had been suspended for being out late, breaking curfew. He was good buddies with a a spitball pitcher uh, named Ray Caldwell, who probably was one of the most talented pitchers in baseball history, but had a a real drinking problem. And uh, Huggins basically said, I made a mistake. And uh, he spent years trying to get Shocker back. And uh, really, if you analyze, usually when Miller Huggins and the Yankees let go of a player, it was very rare that that player, you know, flourished somewhere else. And, uh, and Shocker was virtually the only player of any significance that the Yankees went back and reacquired mm-hmm. seven years later. But Shocker's best years were in St. Louis. And, you know, you go to St. Louis, that was the Western outpost of baseball then. That's almost right. like, you know, going to the frontier. And, you know, he missed out on World Series checks and uh, on a lot of the, you know, the attention at the, the Western part of the league, uh, you know, just didn't didn't get that attention. Sure. And, and, and he was insulted by the trade. He wanted to stay with the Yankees and he was determined to gain a, I guess, a measure of revenge on the Yankees. In fact, he met with a lot of success against them. And of course they met with success against him. The floor floor is yours. Tell us about his battles with the Yankees and, and, and with Babe Ruth. Yeah. Well, he is shocker um, was known as the Yankee jinx. And I uncovered evidence and fairly reliable that uh, after the 1920 season or during the 1920 season, the owner of the Yankees, uh, Jacob Rupert, offered the uh, business manager of the Browns, Bob Quinn, uh, $100,000 to get Shocker back and they wouldn't sell Shocker. And in his early years with the Yankees, uh, excuse me, against the Yankees, he had phenomenal success. Now, he did go into the war. Uh, you know, with the draft in, in uh, 1918, we entered the war in 1917, but really we didn't gear up and, 
you know, in terms of, you know, shipping men and equipment until 18. And he had tremendous success. One could say that the law of averages caught up. And in 1922, the Yankees started catching up and beating him. And he lost, I think, three or four games by a two to one score Mm. against the Yankees. And of course, 1922 was the year that the Browns came within one game of, uh, of beating the Yankees. And, you know, who knows, had the St. Louis Browns won the American League pennant that year, you know, maybe baseball history would have been different because they were the struggling team in St. Louis for a long time uh, was the Cardinals. And mm-hmm. in the first quarter of the 20th century, and I've done a, a book on baseball in St. Louis, 1900-1925, there were a number of years both of those teams were bad. But there were some years that one of the teams was good and drew quite a bit more. And consistently, it was the Browns, not the Cardinals. Interesting. Your book, Intentionally or Not, delves into some things I think some of our listeners might find interesting. Okay. Let's talk about a few of them first. Today's teams employ five-man rotations. It wasn't too long ago that they went with four-man rotations, and now, as as we see, some teams are even considering six-man rotations. But like you said earlier, on some occasions, Urban would pitch every day, every other day, even come on in relief. Talk about yeah, I, how I, often I, he pitched. Yeah, he he wouldn't. Uh, I don't. I don't think he would pitch with no days rest. Although it's funny, whenever they face the Yankees. Uh, Shocker insisted uh, it would be a four-game series usually because St. Louis to New York by train took, I don't know, 36 hours, maybe more. So once they made the Western swing, they weren't going to play three games. And Shocker repeatedly, when there was a four-game series, insisted, and his manager, Lee Full, acquiesced uh, to starting game one and game four against the Yankees. And and he did that. And I think... uh, he, you know, he was able to do it, although in 22, he just was pitching so many innings in 1922. And ironically, what what cost him was uh, he injured his leg. And I think he realized, as many pitchers realize, that sometimes your leg and the strength that you're pushing off right. is as important as the arm. But uh, he just, and, and, and Lee Full was a, a quiet, soft-spoken, pretty good manager, although he, one could criticize Lee for overworking his pitchers but in the case of shocker i mean lee just uh, you know didn't say no and shocker was pretty you know d- demanding um of it but um that's uh yeah there was uh i mean they, they had three man four man rotations i mean we're not talking like before the 20th century where you know one or two pitchers pitched the whole time but uh it's certainly they they carried a lot more weight than they a lot more innings than they do now was he would he be more apt to pitch more against the Yankees than the other teams, or it was just something that he did all the time? I think he would pitch more against uh, the Yankees because I, I really think if we analyze it, so he would pitch on two days rest, game one and game four. And I think other than that, he would pretty typically pitch on three days rest, maybe even a little bit more. And, you know, schedules were funny then because uh, – they, they didn't have, uh, you know, obviously they were traveling by train. So, you know, when teams from the east went west or vice versa, you had a couple days off and just, you know, travel days. And then they, they cram everything together. And 
it became very hard when you have rainy spring times and it seemed like it rained every spring, you know, the, the double headers piled up pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. That was another thing that you had referred to that, that I found quite interesting. I forget the season, but you had talked about how towards the end of the season, I believe it was the Yankees went on the road for like the final 20 games of the year while the Browns were at home for the final 20 games of the year. They had crazy long stretches of road games and home games. Why yeah, you was know, that? I'm, I'm not an expert on that. And that's a good question. Why? Because, um, you know, it was the Yankee stadium wasn't really being used for anything else. And we saw the same thing with the Giants. You know, uh, it it, um, it it it's interesting on the scheduling. It may have made it easier to do it that way. And again, you know, when you have a team, and you know, if uh, New York Yankees were going out west, they have the White Sox, the Tigers, the Browns, mm. and who else am I missing? Um, the Indians. But, I, yeah. So you west. got four. Yeah. You got four teams you want to play, and they would always have three and three, three, three home series, three away series. Mm -hmm. I mean, they played each, it was a balanced schedule. You paid 154 games. You played the other seven teams 22 times. So it's not quite, you know, mm -hmm. four, uh, six, four game series, but you know, if you went on the road, that's 16 days right there. Uh, Cause you're not going to, you know, you can't fly home and then you put the travel time in there and then you add two, three days on either end of travel time and boom, you're up to three weeks. Right. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. Hey, so Urban, health issues, particularly his heart. He had some real health issues that would uh, tragically affect him later on. But every once in a while, as you had discussed earlier, he would disappear from his team and come up with all sorts of stories as to why he disappeared. What's your yeah, understanding we, of, of why he would disappear from the Browns? And, yeah. And how you know, did this we, affect his uh, standing yeah, with the team? You know, we, we, don't, we don't know for sure. And one of the things that is sort of one of my trademarks in writing is I do an insane amount of microfilm work. And the reason why I do, and I know some newspapers have been digitized right now, but in the era that I write about, the late teens and the very early 20s, for example, there were like a dozen New York newspapers. They started consolidating. And each one had its own sports editor and sports writers, and each of them had their own their own contacts, you know, and, and ends with different players or owners. And so you really get a, a, an amazing appreciation and fill in the personality of the guy. And that's really what, what I'm ultimately interested mm -hmm. on is the people. And uh, it appears that, you know, he had drinking problems and he might have gone on benders and he usually ended up in, uh, in uh, when he would disappear uh, in Detroit where uh, his sister lived. And so he wouldn't even have to deal with his, his parents or, you know, the rest of his family. And uh, he could just lie low there uh, and get back in the groove, so to speak. But, uh, you know, we don't know that for sure. He never, you know, went to any clinic that, you know, we know of. And uh, he, he was able to, uh, you know, obviously control it where Ray Caldwell, mm -hmm. you know, uh, went the other direction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't think many of our listeners know much about the St. Louis Browns and you, you touched upon it. Tell me a little bit more about the St. Louis Browns, their struggles and successes while urban was there and just what kind of team they were. Yeah. The, the Browns were, um, you know, American league team, uh, 
and uh, they had a lot of lean years. They had a, a business manager who came on board in the late teams named Bob Quinn. And uh, Bob Quinn's family, his son, John Quinn, built up the Phillies in the late 50s. Uh, uh, and uh, his uh, grandson is in, was in Major League Baseball. I think his great-grandson is. And Quinn was a very astute guy. He came up from the Midwest. And uh, just a small aside, not mentioned in the book, his uh, granddaughter, I believe, is married to Roland Heeman, the longtime hmm. and beloved uh, uh, baseball figure and and, and scout. And uh, Quinn really assembled a powerhouse team uh, in the early 20s. And uh, like I said, that team did. Some people say the, the best Browns team of all time was the 44 team because they won the pennant. But that was a war year. I would argue that the 22 Browns were a better team. Mm-hmm. But uh, the Yankees had the edge on them. So they really, uh, they played in uh, Sportsman's Park which is where, you know, for many years, you know, the the Cardinals played and the Cardinals were a much more financially strapped team. They were sold uh, in 1917 and it was a group of citizens that bought it. People bought shares into it and they had a ballpark uh, that was literally falling apart. And in 1920, the Cardinals went to the Browns and said, can we, play in your ballpark sportsman's park and you know for for the browns that was an interesting deal we'd get twenty thousand dollars or whatever a year in rent but had the browns said no uh one wonders what would have happened so the browns uh said yes and the cardinals then took their ballpark which was not far from uh where the browns played and they sold it and they were uh financially strapped but as an aside here which is really important St. Louis baseball history, the uh, the school board uh, bought part of the property and there was a high school there that just in recent years closed. And then the transit company uh, bought part of the property to use it for a turnaround for their streetcars. And basically they got enough money out of it to not only pay off their debt, but for Branch Rickey to have some money to start fooling around with his farm system, so to speak, ah. and buying a team here and there. But the Browns, the 22 Browns were an extremely colorful team. They had an outfield in the 20s that for five years in a row, uh, all their outfielders hit 300 with the exception of one of them. The last, I think it was 20 through 24, and he fell one one hit short. They were were an awesome team. They were always considered a hitter's team. And Sportsman's Park was a hitter's ballpark. Kenny Williams was a home run hitter. He led the league in home runs the year that Babe Ruth was uh, suspended in 22. And, you know, their pitching wasn't as strong, but Lee Full came around to manage the team in 21, and he was an old-time catcher, and he uh, he really uh, coaxed uh, some good pitching out of that team. And uh, people don't realize the 22 Browns not only led the league, I think, in hitting, but they also led an ERA. It's sort of like the 27 Yankees. We don't realize that. The 27 Yankees, I mean, it's very glamorous to talk about, you know, Ruth and Garrigan, but I mean, their pitching was incredible also. It doesn't get all the attention that the sluggers get. Yeah, I think they led the league in ERA, they led the league in batting average, and they didn't win the pennant. 
And Urban led the league in strikeouts and the fewest walks per nine innings. Yet they they just couldn't overtake the Yankees. Tell us a little more about that 22 season and the battle between the Yankees and the Browns. And the fact that the, the Browns had another really good player on their team, guy by the name of George Sisler. Right. Well, you know, they went back and forth all year round and early in the season, uh, Ruth and another outfielder, Bob Musel, were suspended because they went barnstorming, uh, touring after the 21 World Series and they weren't supposed to. It was a rule that very quickly got changed. But the Yankees held up, you know, sometimes for a month, you just uh, you, you can compensate and they, they and they did hang, hang in there. And then Shocker went down with an injury from early June to early July. And the Browns held in there, and uh, they just went back and forth. And like I said, Shocker lost some two-to-one games, and the series, the the season almost uh, really culminated on a series in St. Louis called the Little World Series. That's what it's come to be known as. Hmm. And uh, they split the first two games, and I believe the uh, the the Browns had closed within a, they were within a half game of the Yankees in Game Three. It was the Browns were. Um, leading until and, and in the last two innings there were like six or seven strange things that happened and ironically uh the Yankees won getting a two-run single just a ground ball up the middle and the p- pitcher that was pitching in relief was was shocker and that gave them the one and a half game lead and uh and, and they held on and Sisler had a uh, uh, George Sisler had a phenomenal year that year but he was he was injured for that series and just was just about swinging his bat one-handed, he hmm. had a shoulder in- injury, and uh, it was it was a terrific battle. And the Yankees won, and, uh, and then they lost four straight to the Giants in the World Series. So, go figure. Dur- during this time, when Urban was with the Browns, is when the Yankees were, well, they were becoming the Yankees. And I think that one thing our listeners might find interesting is how the Red Sox, the the Yankees' heated rivals, yes, the Red Sox, I guess they sort of served as a feeder team for the Yankees. Their owner, Harry Frazzy, always seemed to be in need of money, and he would sell and trade his best players to the Yankees. The most famous, of course, was Babe Ruth. Why did he do this, and how upset were the other owners with this constant shuffling of players from Boston to New York? Well, in in the teens, people may not realize this, but the Boston Red Sox between 1912 and 1918 were in the World Series four times, and guess what? They won all four of them, and they had amazing pitching talent, and uh, Harry Frazee, uh, he was a New York guy at heart. He was a theater producer. And, you know, there have been some conflicting accounts over just how troubled his finances were. But he had a close working relationship with the Yankees. And he he gave the uh, he really sent some immense talent of pitching to New York. And uh, the people that were the most upset about it were uh, were the Boston fans, probably more than the other teams in the league. I mean, if he hadn't done it, the Red Sox would have continued, you know, into the 1920s as a powerhouse team. And then ironically, there was a third powerhouse team at the end, at the beginning of the twenties. And that was the Chicago White Sox. But of course, with the Black Sox scandal, Mm -hmm. they got ripped apart. 
And so the Yankees uh, sort of, uh, you know, got in there to themselves. I wrote an article a number of years ago called the, the curse of the hurlers because people talk about the curse of the Bambino, but the reality is as colorful as he was, there were a lot of good hitters in the 1920s and that was an era of hitting. And it would have been much harder for the Yankees to find really good pitchers like Wade Hoyt and Herb Pennick, who ended up in the Hall of Fame, uh, who came over from uh, from the Boston Red Sox and Carl Mays, hmm. controversial picture. So, uh, you know, Frazee uh, had a close working relationship with the Yankees. They gave him a lot of money as well as some players. And and I've analyzed the trades, and it was really interesting. The trades don't seem as didn't seem as bad at the time when the Yankees got Hoyt or Panic. They didn't seem as bad at the time, but they just worked out brilliantly for the Yankees. Um, and uh, in part, the Yankees had a very sharp business manager, Ed Barrow, and he had managed the Red Sox in 1918 and 1919, so he knew the Red Sox pitching staff very well. And he he and um, you know Miller Huggins you know they they got these uh, talented pitchers and by the time you know they basically there was nothing left on the Red Sox and then for Z you know he sold the Red Sox he probably figured I might as well you know make these sales of the players and get a bunch of money and then I'll sell the team for almost the same amount of money hmm. and uh, and uh, the team became you know the worst team in baseball for a number of years until you know Tom Yawkey bought them in the 30s right. You know, Urban played long before analytics became a part of the game. And you might say Urban was a little ahead of his time with the way he poured over box scores in an attempt to see how hitters were doing. He studied tendencies. Talk about Urban's analytical approach to the game and maybe just how ahead of his time he was. Well, he was always known uh, for buying a whole bunch of newspapers from different uh, um, uh, 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 cities. And, of course, there were only seven cities he had to worry about. And um, he would basically pour over box scores. And if a, if a breaking ball pitcher you know, was pitching and a great hitter went 0 for 5, then he would figure that hitter was having trouble with uh, the breaking ball. So he would look at pitchers and hitters. I don't know whether he actually kept a book. Uh, some players may have kept a book, but I mean, he had it in his head and uh, he was able, you know, I mean, control was such an important thing. And that was even when he was getting ill and we can talk a little bit more about his, what his illness was, but mm -hmm. he was able to put the ball, you know, just where it had to be. And of course, you know, the, the con they call it command now. I don't think they used the word command back then, but, but Shocker was able to put the ball, and he always said, you know, put it just beyond where the hitter likes it. It almost, it's, it seems amazing. I mean, everybody's going to make a mistake. You can't always put it in exactly that spot. But he knew those spots. And nowadays, we're actually seeing it with all the stats where they show the different quadrants. If you go on your iPhone or your computer, you know, yeah. what the hitter is doing. Yeah, quite, quite different. Another thing he did he warmed up different for a game when he was on the road as opposed to being at home. And I find this really interesting. And in your book, you said Shocker made a fascinating observation about pitchers' preparations just before games. Pitchers always warmed up before games they were starting. But on the road, he observed, they had to sit while their teams batted first. 
By the time they went to the mound, they'd cooled off and were not loose with all of their stuff. Because of that, Shocker never warmed up on the road until just before he took the mound after the top of the first and not before the game. You also noted that David Smith, the founder of RetroSheet, presented a paper that discussed this and noted a correlation that home teams score significantly more runs in the first inning than visiting teams. And this might have something to do with it. Not yeah, sure why was, I find this fascinating. Yeah, well, it is fascinating. And, and Dave Smith is an amazing guy. And RetroSheet is a volunteer effort. Uh, a lot of Society for American Baseball research people, RetroSheet.org. And basically, they are inputting every single game in baseball history. In uh, You can go online and find. And now I think they're back to 19, as far back as 1909. Wow. You know, they, they have box scores and, you know, every day. And in a lot of these games, I think from the 50s or 60s on, they have play by play. But Dave Smith analyzed it when he analyzes games and he's a computer wizard. He'll take, uh, you know, he'll jokingly say, I have a small sample size today, 13 million at bats. But he looked at these <laughs> games and that first inning was just so wild. And he looked at all possible reasons. Maybe it's because of travel or whatever. And, uh, and and Shocker may have uh, thought, uh, you know, been aware of something. He was a pretty heady guy, and uh, you know, he thought about it a lot. I mean, he he obviously loved the game and uh, continued to pitch when he, uh, you know, got sick. He was really observant. What do baseball players today, or managers today, or researchers today have to say about that theory? Uh, I mean, do managers and and pitchers even? Does that even cross their mind? You know, I don't I don't know whether that's gotten any, you know, play into the mainstream. Uh, you know, there are these things. It, that's a good question. I don't think it has. Uh, uh, one of the things that I uh, have been aware of, uh, people sometimes just so I can digress for a minute, argue what's the most expo- uh, exciting play in baseball. And some people will say a steal of home. And others will say an inside the park home run or a triple. And I've often said the double suicide squeeze and people look at me (laughs) and uh, the Yankees of the teens and Connie Max athletics executed the double suicide squeeze. Many years ago, I embarrassed my kids because I wrote a letter to Lou Piniella to keep it in his hip pocket. He never used it. But I mean, here again, there was a play where your runners are on second and third. And if the, the squeeze bunt is executed properly towards second base when the pitcher's charging in and the second baseman's charging at first base, the runner on third scores and the runner on second never stops at third. So um, I haven't seen anybody do that play in a while. I don't know how many years it's been. Uh, Sometimes maybe on an air or a throwing air or whatever, it might be scored that way, but I don't think that 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 observation has, uh, that's a good question. We'd have to ask Dave Smith. Because people are getting more sophisticated in in front offices and they study RetroSheet. And I think his paper with those findings is uh, right on the RetroSheet website. So back to Urban, he really wanted to get back to the Yankees. Now, intentionally or not, from and, and in reading this in your book, he sort of pushed the Browns' hands to trade him, especially – when the Browns wouldn't let his wife travel with the team. In fact, he nearly became baseball's unofficial 
first free agent. Explain this episode and the role Kennesaw Mountain Landis played and how Urban finally got back to where he wanted to play, New York. Well, it's an interesting thing. Some teams had rules that wives could not travel on the road. And there was a feeling that the different wives would, you know, maybe sit and start fighting, watching the games. Other teams said, let the wives come along because the players behave themselves a little bit more. And uh, the Browns had a rule and that they couldn't travel on the road. And Shocker wanted to take his wife in 1923 at the end of the season. Subsequently, what came out uh, uh, was uh, uncovering some papers uh, that were at the Hall of Fame is that his wife uh, was suffering from cancer. And they used the word then at the time, and they they wanted to visit a specialist in Philadelphia. But to make a long story short, he was suspended. He won 20 games by the end of August. This is one of those years that he missed an entire month. And, uh, you know, baseball had an, a commissioner starting in 1920. Uh, and Commissioner Landis had some pretty amazing powers. And one of the powers that he had was that any player – could appeal to him. Uh, And uh, quite frankly, a few minutes ago, I talked about the spitball. And one of the reasons why Major League Baseball might have grandfathered those pitchers might have been that the owners were afraid if some of these pitchers were to appeal to Landis that their livelihood is being taken away, you know, because the spitball is being taken away. It's unjust uh, that the owners might have been afraid of Landis. So they just grandfathered them. So in this case, Shocker took his case to Landis, and he wanted to become a free agent because if he were unhappy, you know, he could almost force the team to trade him, but they wouldn't necessarily trade him. There was no free agency, you know, to the team that he wanted. They could have traded him to another bad to a bad team, mm-hmm. and it just uh, he the case was going to go to Landis, and nobody knew how Landis was. Landis and the American League president had a bitter rivalry. And so there was a feeling that Landis might just make Shocker a free agent. So basically there was a big meeting and a settlement and Shocker got a lot of money and uh, on a salary and he stayed with the Browns, but he was still unhappy there. And a year later uh, they felt they had to trade him and it turned out that it was the Yankees. That was, you know, his dream, but he didn't hold out much hope for it, but uh, he got, he got the team that he really always wanted to be with. Yeah, sometimes things work out that way. In all those years, he was with the Browns. As you said earlier, he was somewhat or just a little aloof, somewhat defiant, somewhat of a troublemaker. But when he got back to New York, his demeanor changed. He became more reserved, was well-behaved. Why the change? Well, you know, you know, we don't have a diary or anything like that to draw on, and I would suggest it's it's a combination of a few things. First of all, he was getting older and, you know, in your mid thirties now, you, you, you begin to realize, you know, your career is nearer to the end than the beginning. Uh, he was really, he called them my Yankees. He was just so happy to be back in the Yank- with the Yankees and so satisfied. And uh, so he didn't have all that fight in him and who knew, uh, but when he used to fight like heck, uh, when he pitched against the Yankees, he was impressing Miller Huggins, the Yankee manager, who wanted that kind of a fighting spirit. So he, he had uh, the fact that he was a veteran, the fact that it was uh, his beloved team. Probably a third reason is, let's face it, when you're in a 
on a team with Babe Ruth, he sucks a lot of the <laughs> oxygen out of the room. But the fourth thing is that around the time, apparently, that he just got traded back, it happens in life that your happiest moment can be bittersweet. He probably learned that he had a terminal heart disease. I was just going to ask you it, about this. Everybody is going to react somewhat differently, but is going to react to knowing that he's dying. And uh, a shocker, um, he became a, a very quiet and, and reserved guy and just went about his pitching and uh, was the key Yankee pitcher in the 26 team that uh, that won the pennant. It, it is a stunning – people think the Yankees of the 20s were a dynasty. They were a dynasty in the early 20s. They collapsed the seventh place in 1925. Very few people gave him a chance to do anything or Ruth to do a chance uh, and Shocker was the one who really led the way when they built up that big lead and then went on to win the pennant in 26. So he won 37 games those last two years, he, uh, 26 and 27. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was just, uh, he was, he kept to himself. I, uh, I actually uh, didn't put this in the book, but I got to talk a few times to little Ray Kelly um, some years ago, little Ray Kelly was Babe Ruth's mascot. Some people may remember seeing a picture of Babe Ruth sort of kneeling, holding a bat and this little, like three or four year old kid. And, uh, Ray Kelly was, uh, sort of brought to Yankee stadium and became a regular. The story was that Ruth was driving on Riverside drive and saw this kid and his dad playing ball. Ruth got out, said, come anyway, Ray Kelly became a fixture in the Yankee dugout. Uh, Eddie Bennett was the young mm-hmm, bad boy, but mm-hmm. Ray Kelly was Babe Ruth's mascot. And and uh, when I asked him about Shocker, Kelly said, you know, he said, I could tell uh, tell you stories about any person on the Yankees that I remember from 26 to 27, but I really can't tell you anything about Shocker because wow. he kept to himself. Wow. And this is a guy that in the early 20s was about as – rambunctious and and uh flamboyant as any guy in the game so so he gets to the yankees and i guess yeah i mean this is when he finds out about his heart problems how is he how is he able to hide his heart problems from everyone especially with such fluctuations with his weight and actual physical appearance well he um and I'm no doctor here, although I certainly consulted with some different cardiac doctors, one of which I quote in the book. And, you know, he had mitral valve failure, which nowadays, if your mitral valve is, uh, you know, it, it basically the, the valve doesn't close properly and the fluid leaks back into the uh, chamber. And uh, basically, uh, if you lie down, a person with mitral valve failure gets uh, uh, the sensation like you're drowning in the fluid. And that's why shocker. And he later confirmed it after the Yankees released him that the last three years of his life, he had to uh, sleep, you know, reclining with pillows at an angle. Hmm. And in the early stages of, of the heart disease, you do not lose weight. If anything, you gain weight because you have water retention. And shocker was always described even in the early twenties as stocky, you know, not really fat, but he was a, a stocky guy. So I think it was pretty consistently that way at the end when the disease really uh, took hold and there's a medical term for it, Kachekia, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right. <laughs> then there's dramatic weight loss and then he couldn't hide it anymore. And that was after the at the end of the 27 season. 
And that's why he didn't show up for spring training in 28. And he had this, this huge sort of charade. It was the, you know, the mystery of baseball. Why is urban shocker quitting baseball to go work in his electrical business? And, uh, you know, ball players don't walk away, you know, and finally he gained enough weight to show up for spring training, but uh, he was very sick then. And, uh, and just pitched in one game in 28. But uh, it was nowadays, if you have mitral valve failure, from what I understand is you go to the doctor and they put this mesh, uh, I've seen what they look like, valve in you and you're home for dinner. But in 1920, wow. mid-20s, it was a death sentence. Mm, mm. And yet, through all of this, 1926 and 1927, he was still pitching at a pretty high level. Talk about how his game transformed on the mound. Well, especially in 27. So the two years combined, he won 37 games and he lost 17. Now, granted, he was playing for uh, good Yankee teams, the 27 team, great Yankee team. But he just increasingly his strikeouts uh, fell down and uh, he was just putting uh, the, the, breaking the ball around the corners and people were putting it into play. You know, he was always known as a lot of pitchers, even back then, they don't bear you know, down necessarily in every single pitch. And they may be, uh, you know, many of the pitchers of this era, the good ones were known, okay, they give up hits, but they're really stingy with runs, you know? So uh, he just depended more and more on his, uh, his, his head and his knowledge of hitters and less of his physical strength. And we've got some pretty dramatic, I've got some pretty dramatic quotes in there hmm. that, you know, he just didn't have much physically. And, right. and he did, and he, you know, he, we could talk about the 26 series, but in the 27 series world series, he did not start a game. And I think, I don't know exactly when Miller Huggins knew something was wrong, but uh, he was already beginning to lose weight. And in 27 uh, in September, he wasn't finishing games. And so, it was he he did not get into the 27 series so right yeah let's talk about 26 for a second there what i find ironic is he finally realizes his dream he makes it to the world series and it comes against his old crosstown rivals the st louis cardinals and it wound up being such a disappointment talk about the 26 series Right. You know, the, he, he, Shocker was considered, and, and but I think during the, maybe not during that season, but during 22, when the Browns were threatening, Babe Ruth had a column. And I think we all know Babe Ruth didn't write his own columns, but it was a knowledgeable sports writer, a ghost wrote it, said that it is not inconceivable for if the Browns get in the, in the World Series, that Shocker would win four games, that he could literally, if it went, let's say, seven games, that he might do that. Wow. And ironically, the, 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 the Cardinals were his um, cross on team as a Brown. They all they usually played a preseason. I think it was preseason rather than postseason series. And supposedly he had a in, in the spring training series, he had a unbeaten or just all, only one loss against the Cardinals. And uh, ironically, he goes up. Here he is, this aging pitcher, finally getting his moment in the sun. And he goes up against another aging pitcher, even more famous than him, Grover Cleveland Alexander. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, you know, they they started game two against each other. And uh, Shocker, um, you know, it went into the late innings, a two-two game when Shocker gave up a three-run home run to the uh, right field porch. The ball went around 300 feet, 
But, you know, we, we sometimes forget that baseball is different than other sports. The, the, the field isn't a hundred yards long and uh, you know, it's the basket is not 94 feet or whatever, you know, there's variations. And right. I have a quote in there where Huggins is moaning about how shocker, you know, it's a 300, a little pop fly that the wind took out. And then I sort of juxtapose a Bobby Cox quote when the Braves were beaten by the Yankees on a Chubb Knobloch home run. Yep. And he, he says virtually word for word, the same things that Huggins said, it's a home run, but I mean, it was a pop fly. And, you know, whether Shocker gave the ball, uh, served up a ball to the, the hitters, it was Billy Southworth who went on to a long career as a uh, St. Louis Cardinal manager, even in the 40s, whether he actually played uh, Shocker's uh, to Southworth's strength uh, or, 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 or weakness is not known. But Shocker perhaps came back in a moment of arrogance that, hey, I'm going to get this little guy here. And I'm going to get him out on maybe a pitch that he likes. Shocker didn't know Southworth because Southworth was just traded a few weeks earlier from the Giants to the Cardinals for the stretch run. And uh, that was a crushing defeat. You finally get into the World Series and uh, and he was beaten five to two. And Alexander went on to even more great things in that series. So. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 1927 was going to be a better year for the Yankees. This was the legendary Murderer's Row lineup. They made it to the series and they won it, but as but like you said just before, Urban went 18 and 6 that year, sustained several different types of injuries, but he thought finally this is it. This is my time. But Miller Huggins didn't start him in any of the games. Sure, Urban was on the roster and he warmed up to come on in relief a few times, but he never made an appearance. This had to be so incredibly disappointing to him. You know, he uh, the Yankee pitching was great and they had a young a, a kid who, uh, George Pipgrass, and I think he gave, they were facing the Pirates and uh, – Pipgrass gave up a leadoff uh, triple to one of the uh, uh, to one of the Wayner brothers, uh, and Shocker thought he was going to get in, and he was told that he was the first one in. and And Pipgrass settled down, and and pitched really well. And uh, all the Yankee pitchers pitched well. They used. Uh, uh, I I'm not sure. I think where he was more disappointed was in the 26 series. After you know he pitched fairly well in that game too. And then the series went six games and then it went seven games. You know, he thought he would get a, a start in game six or even game seven in the 26 series. I think by 1927, you know, things were closing in on him. And uh, if you even look at the team picture of the there's a picture of the pitching staff and he looks pretty gaunt and his uniform is hanging on him. So mm -hmm. uh, I, I think he knew he was near to an end game and in the 26 series. You know, as the Yankees fell behind in game six, I well, first of all, he thought maybe he'd start game six. And then when they fell behind, he thought, wow, I may start game seven. And then uh, Huggins calls him in in relief in uh, game six. And he, he just did awful. I think he was so angry that, uh, you know, his late inning, because he knew the minute he's coming in for a mop up in a one sided loss that he's not going to be in game seven. Mm -hmm. But uh, 27, it was. Uh, it was uh, he, he he probably figured I mean, he never had a Lou Gehrig kind of goodbye speech. And maybe if he had accepted it, he'd be remembered 
as much as Gehrig because Gehrig is really as colorless, uh, you know, a, a player and as quiet a player as Shocker was in his Yankee mm-hmm. years. And yet mm-hmm. we all remember Gehrig. Now, granted, Gehrig as a hitter was better and more, f- you know, famous than Shocker as a pitcher. But Shocker really thought that he just hoped against hope that he could beat this thing and make a triumphant return. And it just didn't happen. He had a terrific career, 12 years, I think it was. He won 187 games. Players continually poured praise on him. Newspaper reporters thought he was great, but he just couldn't get over the hump, making it to the series in 26 and didn't pitch well or the team didn't win. He didn't appear in the 27 series, but it was going to go for it again in 28 but it wasn't to be his heart disease mitral valve failure really got a hold of him and miller huggins had no choice but to release him he had to gain weight to get ready for the season announce he retired from the game like you talked about just a little while ago gained the weight necessary came back to the yankees got a raise got into one game just wasn't healthy enough to play Talk about the end. Well, he uh, um, there there was one game he was doing a batting practice warm up, and there was one game in Chicago that he collapsed, and it wasn't reported in the papers, but it, it came out afterwards, and he almost died right there in the clubhouse with uh, his heart disease. But you know, the player asked the reporters, "Don't worry, my wife. Let's not talk about it." But he went uh, he went out to Denver. And uh, just like when people had tuberculosis, like Christy Mathewson, they went to Saranac Lake, New York, where the air is good. Uh, the only problem about Denver, yeah, the air is pure and, you know, maybe you'll get better there. But if you have heart disease, a mile high city is probably not the best place to go. Hmm. And um, I'm not saying he wouldn't have died shortly thereafter had he stayed in a lower elevation. And then to top things off, he was a pretty adventurous guy. And he could no longer, you know, pitch in the majors. So what does he do? He wants a new challenge. He takes up flying. <laughs> so here's a guy with heart disease who's in Denver in the Mile High City, you know, flying airplanes another mile higher. I don't know how high he would go in those days. And he ended up in uh, in a tournament, a very famous tournament in Denver called the Denver Post Tournament, where different semi-pro teams would come. And they, they would bring each team might have a ringer, which was a star player. And Shocker was uh, uh, brought for one team, and uh, and he collapsed on the mound in uh, during his start and went straight to the hospital. And ultimately, I think you know pneumonia you know gets a lot of people, even though that wasn't the primary cause. That might be the final, you know, the final uh, thing that got him. And he he ironically died on one of the most important days in Yankee history in 1928 on September 9th. The Yankees had a 13-and-a-half game lead early in the season. They fell behind. The Philadelphia Athletics came storming back to take a half-game lead. And on uh, September 9th, the day that Shocker died, the Yankees faced the A's in front of over 85,000 fans. It still is, I don't know if it's officially, but the largest crowd in Yankee Stadium history. And uh, the the A's, the Philadelphia Athletics, led both games, but the Yankees rallied to win both games and went on to hold on to their third straight pennant. Uh-huh. And uh, that was the day that um, that Shocker passed away. And the owner of the team that brought him out for the Denver Post Tournament ended up having to pay 
the fees to get his body back to St. Louis, where even as he lived, uh, even as he played for the Yankees, he maintained his home in St. Louis. A sad end to a great career. Do you think that he should have received more consideration for the Hall of Fame? Was he a Hall of Fame quality pitcher? Well, when I got going in my work here, that was sort of my initial thing. And I was contacting some current and former Hall of Fame employees. And that has never been a, a, a driver for me. Um, in the 1920s is, you know, quite, if anything, a little bit overrepresented. And two of his teammates, uh, Wade Hoyt and Herb Pennick, are in the Hall of Fame. And Bill James, uh, in his baseball abstract, argues that probably the wrong two got in that Bob Shockey, who was another very good pitcher like Shocker, um, did not get in. And Shockey and Shocker won just under 200 games. Pennick and Hoyt won another 50, 60 games, but they also lost another 50, 60 uh-huh. and, and, uh, and had much higher, uh, you know, earn run averages. And I think their w- wars were lower, but a lot of things factor into it. When the, when the Hall of Fame opened, Shocker had already been dead for a decade, and uh, Wade Hoyt became a beloved radio broadcaster for the uh, Cincinnati Reds for many years into the 1980s, and it was voted in by the Veterans Committee and Herb Pennick. The other one who was voted in was the general manager of the Phillies, who really built that WizKids team that won the pennant in 1950, and at the winter meetings, I think in 49, he just... In the lobby of the hotel, the winter meetings, he dropped dead of a heart attack at a very young mm. age, and he was very quickly voted in a few months later. So there's all kinds of reasons why people do and don't. And to me, at this point, you know, I, I think just getting Shocker's story out there is mm-hmm. um, is is more been more important to me than whether he's in or you know not in the hall. And it's a great story. And and again, it's it's so weird to me that with a name like Urban Shocker, it's not Joe Smith or, or or Bob Hall or anything like that, Urban Shocker, and so few have ever heard of him. Right, right. Well, hopefully with the book, a uh, few more will have heard of him, and uh, it, it is a, a really an amazing story of courage and love of the game, and, uh, and uh, you know, he played as long as he could, literally. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, uh, why don't you let our listeners know what you're working on right now? Well, I've got a book uh, that I've been editing that's coming out very shortly that the Society for American Baseball Research has uh, been working on. It's a multi-year project, but it's basically on the World Series before 1920 of the dead ball era. Mm -hmm. And I network with a lot of uh, uh, collectors, uh, some of the, the largest private collectors in the nation, and the book's going to have 250 uh, photographs. Many of them have not wow. been seen in over 100 years. Wow. And the, t- the text in the book is – because there have been so many books written about the World Series. What can you do differently? Well, the text is written by the sports writers. Different editors, different Sabre members have taken one World Series for them to put together and extracting the writing. So people like Damon Runyon and, and, uh, or Ring Lardner and others maybe not as well-known – are describing it. So you really get in their words and they were such vivid descriptions, uh, much more evocative. This is before radio. And uh, so that book's going to be out of the next few, a few weeks. Uh, like I said, a lot of photographs and very unique 
kind of book. And then my co-author, Lyle Spatz, and I, who've done 1921 on the Yankees' first pennant and have done um, The Colonel and Hug, the dual biography of Jacob Rupert and Miller Huggins. We are working on a dual biography on a couple of ball players that kept on coming back from the 1920s that were thought to be washed up and they just shocked the baseball world and exactly, you know, how they shocked it. We're going to tell their stories. Jack Quinn, who pitched until the age of 50, Jamie Moyer broke his record here a few years ago and Howard Emke, who probably has the most stunning world series victory, arguably of all time when he was washed up and could barely throw the ball and threw a complete game, game one victory in the 1929 world series. Very setting cool. a strikeout record. Yeah. So Very that, that cool. book's going to be, that book's still a few years away, but the dead ball world series book is uh, going to press now. Steve, thank you so much for joining me on sports forgotten heroes, a terrific conversation. And I certainly hope you would entertain coming back again sometime. Well, uh, yeah, we, Lyle and I tend to uh, enjoy writing about people that have been overlooked or forgotten. Maybe they were not overlooked at one time. And uh, and the new book we're working on is uh, just, again, right up the, your, the alley of your program. And I, I thank you, and I think Urban would somehow uh, thank you also for he waited a long time to get his story out there. Awesome. Thanks again. Thanks so much for being here. All right. Thank you. For his career, as we said a few times, Shocker won 187 games. He also lost 117. The four-year stretch of 1920, 21, 22, and 23, he won more games than anyone else, winning 20, a league-leading 27, 24, and 20, respectively. Of course, his best years were with the Browns. Overall, with St. Louis, he went 126-80, and and with the Yankees, he went 61-37. and Baseball Reference has this cool little feature that identifies similar pitchers. Developed by Bill James, here are some of the pitchers of whom Shocker was similar to. Jack Chesbro, a Hall of Famer who once won 41 games in a single season. Overall, he won 198 games. Mike Cuellar, who won 185 games and in 1969 won a Cy Young Award after going 23-11 for the Baltimore Orioles. And more recently, Jimmy Key, who won 186 games for the Blue Jays, Yankees, and Orioles. The great writer Damon Runyon, fellow pitcher Grover Cleveland Alexander, Babe Ruth, so many, said how great Urban was. And yet, for whatever reason, even with a name like Urban Shocker, so few have ever heard of him. He was one of the game's best, and he won more games in a fewer number of years played than such Hall of Famers as John Ward, Hoyt Wilhelm, and Dizzy Dean. Of course, campaigning for him to be elected to the Hall of Fame is not the purpose of this podcast, but still, he certainly merits consideration. Next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we're going to take a look back at an absolutely fascinating tennis career. Now, don't disappear on me. This is really a remarkable story. It's the story of Gottfried von Kram, who might have played with more pressure on him than any other athlete in any other sport, period. While representing Germany as a Jew, as Hitler was coming into power, von Kram knew 
Had he lost a particular Davis Cup match to American Don Budge, he might have had to face the wrath of Hitler. And who knew how the Fuhrer would have reacted? Like I said, a simply fascinating story about a real hero who helped so many during one of the most horrific periods in history. That's next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes. Thank you again to today's guest, Steve Steinberg, and we'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes.